Well, good morning. Good to see everyone. We have so much to cover. One quick announcement before we get rolling. And that is, uh, I would sure appreciate your prayers on our Ugandan trip. We take off on Tuesday, so I'm going to be gone a couple weeks. And of course, my eyes are always going to be a little focused on my daughter, bringing my daughter over there, right? 16 years old. And so I'm going to be thinking about her a lot while I'm trying to do ministry as well. Uh, but we have so many capable leaders. We have so many powerful people going over. I really think that this may be a chance for us to really engage with the Lord and bring back some, some joy and some glory and some power and some fun to be able to pour that back into the church. Uh, and remember, I believe so much in the system that God set up where there's a power of prayer that if we go on that trip without prayers, it'll go one way. If we go on that trip with prayers, it'll go a different way. So by all means, would you best be praying along with us for a, a wonderful, wonderful trip? Uh, protection and health and all that stuff, and so that the Lord would also move mightily in our midst so we can come back filled full of faith to be able to encourage everybody here, yeah? That's kind of the point. All right, that's it for announcements. Grab your Bible and the handout sheet that was given to you at the front door, and we can begin. We are in part 11 of our Purpose Reclamation Project series through the book of Ezra, line by line, and we only got one more piece to this. One more close. Now, next week is going to be the close, and I'm handing that off to our very own pastor and bishop, Parnell Lovelace. He will be able to knock the home run and close this series out. So we are going to end it, this particular portion with a little bit more of a serious tone of tension. So know that as we finish up, it's kind of like, hey, I don't know. Okay, was that like a clap? No, I don't know what I'm doing. Now I feel like I man, now I feel terrible. What did you do to me, right? And then you, you walk out of church and go, I'm never going back. Okay, so just letting you know in advance what's about to occur. So, um, but we're following along in the story. But before we get to the fill in the blank, I wanna talk through uh, a concept that may seem unrelated, but we'll try to knit it together. It's the idea of critical thinking. Got into a conversation recently with our SLT team, our senior leadership team, that is, People like, uh, you know, Pastor Brian and myself and, you know, uh, Pastor and Bishop Parnell Lovelace and also, you know, Miss Heidi, our director of operations. And, you know, there's a couple of us there in that team. We got into this conversation about whether or not life skills and critical thinking are taught today by parents to their kids, but even more so is it taught in our educational system? Are, Are we really teaching and training all of our young people and even ourselves to think critically through situations as opposed to just going off the information we have at the time or reacting emotionally to a situation. Here's what I mean by critical thinking. What I mean is making decisions based on the big picture, right? Not just what's in front of you, not just what's for today, but thinking bigger than that, realizing that it's not just this one isolated incident, but everything we do has a cause and effect to it. Yeah? Y'all following me? You know, I think that uh, one of the funny parts of this is I was talking with with my, my daughter, Andy. We were driving home from an event the other night, 
And Andy was lamenting the fact that she gets taught an awful lot of math in school that she'll never use, right? She's like, why do I have to learn this stuff? I'm never going to use this. And then she listed off all the things she has to learn. And I was like, well, engineers use that and they use that, and right? So, okay, so I'm going to clarify. If you're an engineer, you need all that math. The rest of us, we don't. Okay. And it was funny because she said, I hear you and mom talk and you guys used to get stuff that was practical learning. Uh, like for example, I was in home ec. Anybody remember home ec? Yeah, come on, how to make a cake. Yeah, that's important stuff, right? Learn how to make a cake in home ec. Well, it was kind of the idea of practical life skills. You know, um, so I, I remember when I first got my first checkbook and, and my mom, she taught me how to balance my checkbook. Susie's mom taught her how to balance a checkbook. Now, of course, all that stuff is done online. I'm not encouraging us to go old school on that. But what I'm saying is that all these practical tools, um, because our young people are in such an information overload, there's so much academic stuff that has to completely obliterate their minds. We have to train and train and train all this other stuff. It kind of moved out stuff like uh, practical economics or, or home ec or arts and culture it began to move this other stuff out in in that i think that this this critical thinking training got lost let's dig in a little bit deeper when i talk about critical thinking i'm talking about considering all sides to an issue not just your side let's say for example your friend calls you up on the phone and her name's barbara and she said can you believe what what jamie did to me she, and then she throws out the scenario. If you are not critical thinking, you're just going to jump right on the bandwagon and be like, yeah, let's hang her up. You know, let's kill her. Uh, you know, and what if Barbara's the problem, right? I mean, it's your friend. Well, I defend my friend. What if your friend's the problem? Have you ever thought that there's two sides to a story that there's not just one side that's wisdom, right? Talking with one of our leaders that came back from Hume Lake camp, right? With all of our high school and middle school students. He said, man, if there's one thing I learned this week was there are two sides to every story, right? Because whatever the kids bring to you one way, boom, there's a whole nother way to look at it on the other side. So critical thinking, thinking of both sides. Another one is realizing it's not just about us, but that what we do affects other people, right? So for example, um, and my mom's present, so, so I'll have to be honest. Anyway, um, <laughs> So, so let me tell you a little bit about me growing up. I'm going to share a little bit later. But me growing up, uh, I was kind of a, a, a wimpy kid in the sense that I didn't need a whole lot of discipline, right? I was kind of, I would kind of snap just by a bad look, right? So there, there wasn't a whole lot of that. And I didn't really battle with my mom about too much except for two things. Two things I, I argued with my mom about. Number one of them was growing my hair long. All right, so this is a different era and there's a whole different issue going on, right? Uh, um, and you've seen the picture, so we'll move on. <laughs> Someone's like, your mom should have won that argument. Anyway, uh, the second one was curfew. Curfew. Y'all know what curfew is, right? The whole idea that you got to come home at a certain time. Now, the reason why I was constantly battling is that I was trying to express and say, you know what? Um, I'm this kind of young man. I should be able to have this type of freedom. I'm responsible with this. And Every argument I made was about me. What it wasn't about was that until I was home, my mom was not going to rest. Okay, so it had nothing to do with her. 
that in my world, I was arguing everything about how was I appropriate for this, as opposed to saying, why should my decisions screw up the household's ability to rest? Y'all following me? Okay, so that's a critical thinking thing um, that I was not able to think outside of that. Pretty narrow. Another one, uh, remembering that God is looking at all times to see the intent and motivations of our heart. That's critical thinking. It's the idea of realizing that what you think and what you do and what you say is a heavenly show to the angels. The angels are watching this stuff. They know what's going on. God's watching at all times. Are you thinking through that? that it is on display. Another one is understanding our personal reputation and corporate identity. In other words, if you make this choice, what's that going to do with who you really wanna be long-term? If you make this choice, what's it going to say about the group that you are a part of? So for example, you would say, um, you would say, um, I think I'm going to just go out and I'm going to do this and it's only about me. And yet everyone knows you're a believer. And so they're going to wash over. Let's say you decide in the moment that you're going to just cuss somebody out in the gas station because they didn't get out and, you know, to fast enough in front of you. And they all know you're a believer. What you just did was just cast a, a whole dispersion all over the church because everyone's going to go, oh, they're representative of all of Bridgeway. You go, well, I didn't ask for that. It doesn't matter what you asked for. I'm just saying that there's ramifications to decisions that we make. The idea is looking down at the ripple effect of our decisions. And I don't think that some of us are very good at that. Some of our personalities overanalyze, right? And we're overthinking things and we might need to mellow out. Some of us are underthinking things and we're not thinking them all the way through. All right, so I mentioned to you that I'm not great at math. Did I mention that? I should mention that. I'm not good at math and that's probably why my daughter was complaining. So I'm gonna, in order to stretch in this area, I'm going to use a math analogy, right? So th those of you that are really good at math, you're gonna be able to track with this. The rest of you, you might need to write it down, all right? And we you can visit it later. All right, so everyone ready? Here we go. We're gonna go through a math one. You can check my math. Because once again, I'm not really good at this. Here we go. Here's the analogy. Let's say I have 20 bucks. I have 20 bucks and I'm going to go to fast food before I go to the movie and I spend $12 at fast food. Now we have to pause the story because all the women are saying, why would you spend $12 at fast food? And that is because I'm a dude and dudes spend $12 at fast food. All right, moving on. Now, you spend $12 on fast food and then you go to the movies and the movie costs 10 bucks, you're not gonna have enough money. Y'all follow me? Huh? Huh? It's math, right? Right, it's 20 bucks minus 12 bucks is eight bucks. All right, fantastic, but the movie's 10, you don't have enough money. All right, why would I say something as silly and stupid as that? It's because that's unfortunately the kind of stuff we're not grasping. For example, when you make a decision to be selfish, your children are not going to respect you and you're not seeming to understand that, right? I mean, I, to me, it seems like the simple math, right? When, when we decide to make this type of decision, it's going to wreck that. I'm not, we should be able to see it. And the reason why I'm pointing it out is I used to do the primary counseling at this church before we had a whole counseling wing. And I would have couples come into my office and they would present to me an impossible situation. 
they present to me a situation that I went, man, the only way out of this is a lot of pain for everybody. Like there is no easy solution here. I don't know what your answer is. And they look at me like, well, I don't know how we got here. Really? You don't know how we got here. Well, kind of one thing leads to one thing and it kind of moves that way, right? So no, we do know how we got here. If you don't brush your teeth, you're ultimately going to have teeth problems, right? If you don't manage and maintain the vibrancy of your marriage, you're going to have marriage problems, right? Do you understand what I'm saying? Like we could play this game with a lot of other things to be able to say one and one and one, it's going to happen. And so we have to be able to be thinking through these decisions. And the reason why I'm talking about it, not just in church, because I believe that we do need to train some life skills here, but I believe that this is happening in our spiritual lives. For example, I believe that we are hijacking our blessings, ruining our strength, frustrating the discipleship process with our poor choices. I feel like God has made a system that was supposed to go pretty easy and pretty smooth and full of power and authority. And I feel like we're not living in it because we're just choosing other stuff. And it's kind of messing it up. Let me give you a, a, a quote. I was looking through a quote by Dallas Willard. He's a super, super smart guy. He's passed on into glory, but he wrote a book called the spirit of the disciplines. He said this, he said, talking about this issue, our main problem is this, we want what is right and important, but at the same time, we refuse to commit to the kind of life that will produce the action we know to be right and the condition we want to enjoy. He said, this is a feature of human character that explains why the road to hell is paved with good intentions. We intend what is right, but we avoid the life that would make it a reality. Jesus said, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And in that immediate context, he was calling the Jewish people to himself and saying, guys, your religious culture has added on all these burdens that I never had for you. All these extra rules and all these extra laws and you're miserable. I never asked you to do that. You see, my yoke is easy. When you connect in with me, like the yoke of an oxen, when you, when you tie in with me, my yoke is easy on you and my burden is light because I'm not adding something to your pack. Most of your life is simply unpacking what I already bought for you. In other words, you spend all your life going, wow, Jesus gave me that. Wow, Jesus bought me that. Wow, Jesus planted that, right? He said, that should be the way that it goes. The heaviness and the weight that is upon you today, I didn't ask for you to carry. I didn't put those burdens on you. I'm not the one that said, you know what you need to do is saddle more responsibility on your shoulders. You know what I didn't ask you to do? I didn't say tie into this world so everything is too stressful. What I didn't ask you to do was overload your calendar. What I didn't ask you to do was do a bunch of things and commit to everything so you can't even handle your life. I did not ask you to do that. I just asked you to be with me and let me call the shots. When we choose things other than Christ and his way, we stumble and it makes it much more difficult to see clearly. The fill in the blank on the sheet in front of you is this. Compromise makes the pursuit of purpose difficult. Compromise makes the pursuit 
of purpose difficult. We've been talking about this year of purpose and and chasing after what God wants for us, but each and every time we choose something other than him, it makes that pursuit harder. Let's use, for example, this Uganda thing, right? So I'm going to Uganda, Africa. There are a bunch of things that could have made it impossible for me to go. As a matter of fact, the way that I live my life, some of it was already difficult to go. Let's say, for example, God whispered something to you and he inspired you at church. You heard him clearly and he said to you, he said, I want you to go do this. And then immediately all the other things in your mind went, well, I can't do that because of this, 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 and this. That compromise prior made it very difficult to respond to the voice of the Lord. Well, I can't do that because I'm in $150,000 of credit card debt. Okay, so who asked you to do that? You understand what I mean? We're making all these things that at the moment we're kind of like, well, I'm just making some decisions. Our decisions have ramifications. Are we free to do what the Lord asks us to do? And if not, why not? If we kind of go, well, I don't really want to be away from my family for two weeks. Well, if you really are saying that my family is an idol to me and I don't have an identity outside of my family, we have a problem. If you're saying I'm just nervous to be away, at least call it what it is. I'm just nervous to be away from my family, right? What what I'm saying is each and every time that we compromise of something that the Lord is asking us to do, we don't think of an ecosystem where what we do here affects way over there. We don't realize that a decision made today is going to affect our freedom to follow the Lord a year from now. But we need to. That's the critical thinking that we have to do as Christians. What do you really want to pursue? What do you really want to chase after? Hmm. You know, it is, let me me just read this. I believe that God has great purposes for us. And what I mean by great purposes are kingdom advancing movements, sin domination and eradication, a life of peace free from regret, complete union with God. I'm talking about like big stuff. So the big question is what needs to change in our lives right now in order to move forward with the purposes of God? That's really the underlying challenge in this entire message. Here's my dream. I'm going to use a, an overused analogy here. And I, I, I got to be honest with you. I'm not, I'm not a big guy that's like, oh, he's a pastor. He's totally against smoking. Okay, I don't. I'm really not against smoking. As a matter of fact, I love the smell of cigarette smoke. That's just weird. But anyway... Uh, there's nothing I can find in the Bible that says don't smoke, right? Other than the passage that says, well, it's stupid and it'll kill you. But anyway, that I don't, uh, I don't, there's nothing like sinful, ooh, you're smoking, right? So I'm not, I'm not saying that. So let me just use that in an analogy to explain my dream. My, my dream is this. Imagine that you smoke and it's all cool because you are just hanging on the couch and, and all you got to do is get up. You don't get winded going to the bathroom, that kind of thing, right? But then... You all of a sudden have a hangout with a bunch of friends and they all are marathon runners. And so you start a running club and all of a sudden you're like, where's my capacity? And it starts hijacking something you really want to do. And all your friends keep running 
and all your friends keep going. At some point, the cigarette becomes an agitation to you because you're going, it is stopping me from what I want more. And all of a sudden, it, you go, you know what? I don't like this. I don't even want it around me because I've fallen in love with something greater. So here's what I'm saying. My dream is not that we have a church environment where we don't do certain things because a system's going to get mad at you. Y'all following me? I don't, I'm not here to create a church that tries to be the sin police and tell you and be an external monitor to try to demand that you make right decisions. What I dream of is inside, you're so in love with Jesus and you're so passionate of wanting all that he has that anything that would hinder that, you aren't even attracted to. Y'all following me? That's, that's what we want. We want this internal drive to go, man, I used to like cigarettes, but I now love something more. I used to like sin, but now I want something more. I used, you understand what I'm saying? And that internal motivation is running the clock 24 hours a day so that someone else isn't your police. Your drive and desire is your guide towards Jesus. Would you turn with me to Ezra chapter 9? Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. If you need a, a Bible to borrow a Bible today, grab the one under the seat in front of you. It's page 395, 395. Ezra chapter 9, verse 1. One of the things the Bible isn't real clear about or real good at is telling you when we fast forward in the movie. Okay? So we last time we were together, Ezra kind of got his group of a couple thousand people, tons of cash and some t Levites and some priests and everything, his big kind of help resource cavalry had arrived into Jerusalem from Babylon. And they had just settled down, took a real quick break of a couple days, and then they locked in all the money in the temple. And that's where we left the story. When we open up the next chapter, we are four months later. So they don't tell you that. You just need to know that, right? Okay, so now we're four months later. He said, after these things had been done, four months later, the officials, the leaders and the people approached me and they said to me, hey, Ezra, the people of Israel who have been here and the priests and the Levites that have been running this stuff, they have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. From the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race of the Jews has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the leadership, the officials, and the chief men has been the worst. Okay. When you first just read this in modern day context, you're like, yeah, I don't understand what's going on. Are we trying to say something weird about interracial marriage and blah, blah, blah? No, this has nothing to do with ethnic blending. This has everything to do with religious blending. I want to be very clear on something in scripture. God has no problem. God is very international. Uh, have you noticed that? 
Um, God is very international and completely cool with interracial marriage and love and wonderful connections and, you know, friendship. That's kind of a lot of that stuff is really what we're trying to encourage and believe in right here at Bridgeway. That is not an issue. But there is an issue here. And if we don't get to the heart of it, it's going to make the end of this story super uncomfortable and weird. So I'm going to drive down and dig down deeply to help you understand something so the rest of the book makes sense and it can finish well, right? You're going to go, well, it's a bit overkill. I agree. But I'm going to do it anyway. Here we go. Here's the situation. You're going to find out at the end of the story that over 100 Jewish leaders had taken wives and intermixed with the pagan nations God specifically told them not to intermix with because of religious reasons. It's so bad that Malachi, y'all know the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi? Malachi actually lived and taught and prophesied at the same time as Ezra and Nehemiah. So if you're trying to organize these guys, they're all talking at the same time. Malachi talks about the situation. He said it's not just that single dudes married foreign women from these nations. It's that even married guys divorced their own Jewish wives and connected in and grabbed foreign wives. As a matter of fact, it's so bad that when Nehemiah deals with the situation, he gets so angry at the perpetrators, he rips their hair out. Now, you got to be pretty mad if you're ripping other people's hair out. You understand what I'm saying? It's one thing for you to pull your own hair out. It's another thing to pull other people's hair out. Uh, This is a huge deal. Why? Because God very clearly stated you can connect and intermarry with every nation of the world except these groups. And he was very clear. How do we know that? Keep your finger here in Ezra and jump back to the left with me in your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7, 1. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 1. You realize God is not playing, all right, on these instructions. Deuteronomy 7, 1. Here we go. These are the instructions to Moses that are given through Moses. So we're going way back in time when they first are going to go into the promised land. Remember, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those were available to all the leadership. They taught them to the people. They talked about them at Sabbath. Everyone should know these very clearly so you can tell me if you think that god was clear enough here we go when the lord your god brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of that's the promised land and he clears away many nations before you the hittites the girgashites the amorites the canaanites the perizzites the hivites and the jebusites seven nations more numerous and mightier than you And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote to them complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them. You shall show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons because they're going to turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he'll destroy you quickly. But this is how you should deal with them. You should break down their altars, dash in pieces their pillars and chop down their asherim and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, meaning set apart, distinct, unusual. 
The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Scoot to verse 16. And you shall consume all these peoples that the Lord has given over to you. Your eyes shall not pity them. Neither shall you serve their gods, for that would be a snare to you. Go to verse 25. The carved images of their gods you shall burn with fire. You shall not covet the silver or the gold that is in them, or take it for yourselves, lest you be ensnared by it, for it is an abomination to the Lord your God. And you shall not bring an abominable thing into your house and become devoted to destruction like it. You shall utterly detest and abhor it, for it is devoted to destruction. Is that clear? Crystal clear. Yep, just clear. As a matter of fact, this is only one of the times you can go to Exodus 34, 11 through 16, and a bunch of other passages where God says the same thing over and over and over again. Okay, so why is this a big problem? Because God was super clear, and they did it anyway. That's a direct violation. But I do want to clear something up, because if you go to, let's say you go to some uh, liberal university, and you, and you come in and do some type of religion class, well, they're going to start talking about stuff in the Bible, and they're going to be like, you know what? Everyone gets so mad at, at uh, different countries that want to invade and they want to grab more land and they, and they say that their God said so. Well, the Jews did the same thing. So they'll use that example. They launched a jihad, they'll say, a holy war where they went in and they said, we want this promised land. So we're going to say our God said you all have to go. So we're going to take your stuff. I want to be very clear on why that does not apply to the Jews. And it's because the Bible is very clear. It wasn't their idea. It was God's idea, first of all. And you're like, well, everyone says that. Okay, well, either they're liars or they're not. If they're liars, they're wrong. If God really said it, they're right. It was not their idea, nor were they allowed to keep the cool stuff. Not with these nations. They were moving into a place called Canaan. So all the people groups, they called Canaanites. But it was a bunch of small people groups. There were seven of them. God was very clear to Israel you are not getting this land because you're the good guys and they're the bad guys. You're getting this land because I'm bringing judgment on them. You're simply a tool that I am using. It is more about them getting kicked out than you getting in. How do we know that? Just listen to this. This is in Deuteronomy 9.4. Do not say in your heart, God says, after the Lord your God has thrust out these nations before you, don't say this, quote, Oh, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it's because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness, not because of the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land. But because of their wickedness, these nations, the Lord is driving them out before you that he may confirm the word the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You are a stubborn people. There you go. That was God going, hold up. Who's it about? About me. 
I have worked with this people group for over 400 years while I had you in slavery in Egypt. I've already worked with them. Then when you guys came to the promised land, we could have gone in, but you screwed it up and we had to go march around for another 40 years. So I've been dealing with this people group for about 440 years, giving them my love, giving them my love, giving them my love. And they chose other. Therefore, their wickedness has drawn my wrath. I'm going to obliterate them out of the land and move you guys in. But it's not because you guys are awesome because they were out of line and you go oh it seems kind of hard god did the same thing to israel why do you think they got kicked out of their land it's not like god was playing favorites god did the same thing at home israel you're out of line boom kicked them completely out of their land let people backfill it god is very consistent so i'm just trying to be very clear on the promised land campaign may not be what you think it is right And remember, it is not all foreigners. There are laws. I could sit there and give you a bunch of lists of them. Israelite men were allowed to marry women of other nations. There was just a process they had to go through. So it was not like, ooh, don't mix with them, don't mix with them. They could mix with anybody. But these seven nations don't mess this up. All right? Last thing. um, I say last thing. It's not the last thing. That's just a pastor's lie. (laughs) You understand what I'm saying? Another thing, (laughs) I want to always keep in your mind that Israel had a very unique calling. So be very careful of attributing their stuff to your situation. One person's calling is not everybody's calling. And this is another one of those critical thinking concepts we need to learn just because the Lord says, hey, I need you to stay away from that. And it's not clear sin or anything like that. But the Lord's like, it ain't good for you. Please don't run around and tell everyone else not to do that and be the sin police for them. God's trying to whisper to you saying it's a snare to you, not to everybody else. But Israel's calling was so unique, so strange that it caused them to do weird things. And if you don't know why they did them, you're going to start applying it wrong. For example, let's talk about some of the things God asked them to do. You all know what kosher is? Kosher, right? That's a dietary law. What it means is that Jews are allowed to eat some things. They're not allowed to eat other things. So if you ever see on the packages in the store and it says kosher certified or whatever, it's telling you this is legit. Well, the rules kind of are really unusual. What they can and can't eat. For example, they can eat lamb. They can eat cows. They can't eat pigs. Why? Because God loves cows and lambs more than pigs. Right? It's clear. That's not true. There are many saved pigs all over the world. They're doing pig evangelism. There's, I mean, there's revivals in pens everywhere. Well, my point in saying that is, no, it's not that God likes one animal more than the other animal. It's that he drew a line in the sand and said, this is going to be a test of obedience to you because I'm going to tell the world what unclean and clean are. Unclean and clean. Well, the only way I'm going to make that picture, because Israel, you're a display to the world, physical display of spiritual truth. So I'm going to tell everybody there's clean and unclean. They're going to go, what do you mean? I'm going to go, well, cows are clean. Pigs are unclean. Why? I just made up the rule. So it just is what it is. 
Let me give you a couple other weird things. The sacrificial system, right? That the Jews followed. Here's what's weird. You do something wrong. I need you to kill something. I'm sorry. What? What is the rule? Yeah, you did something wrong. So an animal has to die. Well, that sounds dumb unless you realize it's a spiritual truth that when someone sins against a holy and righteous God, blood must be shed. Oh, well, that makes sense. So he made them do weird stuff. You ready for some more? On their holy days, they would even have to play dress up. Y'all remember the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles? All right, everyone don't live in your house. Go make a little tent out in front of your yard and everyone pretend like we're wandering in the desert. Okay, that's dumb. (laughs) Unless you realize it was hearkening back and thanking the Lord for the way that he led them through the wilderness and they wouldn't forget about it, right? Once again, physical display of a spiritual truth. Now, we could keep going on. I have all kinds of these listed out. But one of them I want to be very clear on is, do you realize that handicapped people and eunuchs were not allowed to minister in the temple? When you read that, it's so offensive. How dare you, right? God doesn't like people that are handicapped. Who made them handicapped in the first place? That was God, blah, 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 blah. It was because he was doing a spiritual truth about the demand of perfection. It had nothing to do with his love for the people. Here's how we know that. It is believed that Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were all eunuchs. They are some of the coolest guys ever in the entire Bible. They weren't allowed to minister in the temple before God because they had crushed testicles. That's how they did it in the past. The reason why I'm pointing all this out is all these weird rules that you would go, I don't understand. Is God just not like those people? It's not that God did not like these nations. There was a judgment that was upon them and God was creating a spiritual truth. That's why this is important. All right. Let's move forward. Verse three. It says this. Yeah. Verse three. Woo! Flying. It will explain everything I just said will explain the rest of it. Here we go. As soon as I heard this, Ezra said, I tore my undergarment. I ripped my outer cloak. I pulled hair from my head and my beard, and I sat appalled, mourning like someone was dead, shocked, horrified, astonished. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, all the other people that took God seriously, because of the faithfulness of these returned exiles and what they did, they gathered around me in front of the temple publicly while I sat appalled from morning until 3 p.m., the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, when people gather for prayer, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn, and I fell upon my knees, and I spread out my hands to the Lord my God, saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed, and I blush to even lift my face to you, my God, for our iniquities. Wait, wait. What did he do wrong? Nothing. What does he know? What we do we do. That's corporate identity. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt. And for our iniquities, we, meaning our kings, our priests, have been given into the hand of the kings of the lands, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, to utter shame as it is today. What did he just say? Well, let me give you a couple points. When's the last time you responded to sin 
in your life like this? You ever been appalled by your own sin? Here's what I didn't ask. When's the last time you got busted and you were super upset about it? That's what I didn't say. I'm talking about before you got busted. Remember, God hasn't busted them for anything yet. They've been doing this for, they've been in the land 60 years. So I don't know how long it's been going on, but just because Ezra knows about it doesn't mean God was like, what? God knew. Nobody's gotten busted yet. When's the last time you were appalled at the sin in your life because it violated the God you love the most and you were appalled? I'll tell you that in my life, I can't remember a time. That's embarrassing to say. I can't remember a time. Why? Because the practical reality is I think that God is understanding and God seems to just be okay with it. And I tend to love my sin too much. So I don't tend to get upset about it. There you go. How about you? Let's be real. Yes. Why are you not appalled? Why do you not sit down on the ground and go, God, what in the world did I do? He does a spiritual discipline of sorrow and repentance that I don't think we've ever understood. He says, God, I'm going to crawl into the situation to fully own it. I'm going to put everything away from me. I'm going to fast. I'm going to tear my clothes. I'm going to mourn over my sin. That's, that's fascinating because he wants to be there with God. Let me ask you, if Jesus died on the cross for our sins, why is sins a big deal? Because what is sin? Sin is ultimately selfishness where you slap God in the face. Now, if you slap God, a holy God in the face, you should be destroyed. Jesus died so you wouldn't be, right? And you go, oh, okay, so I'm not going to be destroyed. Yeah, but do you understand that slapping God in the face still isn't cool? It's a relational thing now. Sin matters because it's your heavenly father. And he's going, listen, even though my son died for your sins and ultimately we're cool in that way i'm not going to be okay with you consistently choosing you over me i'm not going to be okay with you slapping me in the face it's going to cause a relational problem so yeah your sin still matters well i'm not going to heaven oh are you only using god for a heaven ticket oh no you're going to heaven you're just being a jerk y'all following me and then let me say this, what's God supposed to do? What's God supposed to do when he corrects to the nth degree and they still don't learn? What is he going to do with us? Uh, as I said, I was kind of an unusual kid. I remember when I was about seven years old, I heard my mom battling with my sister. My sister was way more strong-willed than me. And I saw my mom not being able to get through to her. And as a seven-year-old, I was processing, what am I going to do when I'm a father and I have a child and I cannot get through to them, right? I'm seven years old. <laughs> totally weird. And I was completely panicked because I was like, what do I do? You've done everything. Because here's the scenario we're looking at, right? The scenario we're looking at is that God already knocked out the north by the Assyrians in 722 BC, already wiped out the south in 586 BC, it only left a remnant, completely removed the Jews from their land. The unthinkable happened. He brought down such heavy discipline. Now they just got back in their land. They've only been in the land for 60 years and they're already right back to the reason they got kicked out. What's he supposed to do with us? I mean, do you have an answer? 
if he consistently is kind to us, he's tried the kindness leads to repentance. He's tried the discipline. He's tried all that stuff, and we're simply not learning. What's he supposed to do? I don't know. I don't know. And that's how Ezra felt. Verse 8. For a brief moment, for the 80 years since we got the issued decree from Cyrus that we could even go home. God, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and give us a secure hold within this holy place here in Jerusalem that our God may brighten our eyes with vitality and joy. Grant us a little reviving in the midst of our difficulty for we are slaves. Yet our God has not forsaken us to slavery, but he extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia right in front of them to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, the temple, to repair its ruins, to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. Here's what he's saying. Guys, this is our shot. This is it, man. We've been waiting for this. All of us born in slavery, captivity. Man, all of us that are old enough to even remember. This is what we've all prayed so hard for. It's what all of the history of the Jews going, can we be in our land? Can we praise God? Can we be the salt and light? Can we be God's chosen people? Can we just dwell in his presence? And we're blowing it. Man, what are we doing, you guys? God's trying to bless us. Our sin is ruining it. I don't know what to tell you guys anymore. You all thought that you would do this because what? It was all about you? Oh, I'm just going to hook up with this chick because it's no big deal. And I really, it's only just me and, and I'm sure God will be cool with it. You know what? You've hijacked our nation. I didn't do anything. And now I'm on the edge of destruction. Because what you do, we do. So you guys, I don't know what to say anymore. I don't know where we're supposed to go with this. We're way out of line. Take a look at verse 10. And now, oh my God, what shall we say after this? We've forsaken your commandments, which you commanded clearly by your servants, the prophets, saying the land you are entering to take possession of it. It is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons. Never seek their peace or prosperity that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it to an inheritance to your children forever. Here's what Ezra's saying. So it was about you, yeah? Really? Because I'm going to tell you right now what you just did. You just intermarried, and now all of a sudden you have kids. What do you think is going to happen to your family? What, it's not going to affect your kids? The whole reason we were all born in Babylon is something our parents did. We weren't even there. It all falls on us. The decisions you make today, they're all over your kids. And you keep thinking, it's just you. It's just me. It's not just you. Think through. Man, when you decide to fall into this whole lifestyle, it's going to affect your children and your children's children. I know we all want to pretend like we're in a little closet and it's just us. It's not. And here's the other thing, my Jewish friends. 
God knows whoever you hang with, you become just like them. So he's got to cut this big, huge swath so you don't intermix. Because the minute you get around someone, you morph right into them. So I can't even have you hang out together. Y'all know what a fire break is? A fire break is where sometimes you see uh, the fire department, if there's a big fire going, they'll actually light a fire ahead of it, which seems super weird. And they light a big fire to clear a path. And the whole point is to stop the fire and give it an edge where it stops. Because if your path isn't wide enough, what happens? Fire jumps. This is so crazy. The sparks and everything, they spark over and they will clear the fire break. So you have to have the fire break super wide. What was God doing and telling him to get rid of everything? A big, huge, super wide fire break. Guys, you are so, you'll even jump it. If I gave you some general rules and said, come on, you guys, we're all adults here. You know how to handle it. You don't know how to handle it. I got to give you like these big extreme, I'll kill you if you do it. You know, I got to be all intense because you're going to become like everyone you hang out with. No, we won't. Yeah, you will. We're going to be different. No, you won't. That's why we have the laws. Pick it up in verse 13. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds, God, for our great guilt, seeing that you are God, you've punished us with less than our sins deserve. You've given us such a remnant as this. Are we really going to break your commandments again and intermarry with a people who practice these abominations? If we did that, wouldn't you be angry with us so much that you're going to consume us, that there would be no remnant left or any to escape? Oh, Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, and none of us can stand before you because of this. What'd you just hear? And God, what are we going to say? We blew it. We have nowhere to go. Let me ask you a personal question. When's the last time you got busted for sin and didn't wiggle out or excuse it? Do you ever just sit up under it? Probably not. Why? Because it was scary. Discipline's scary. But here's something I need to encourage you with. God is a good God. And he's a good dad. Some of you did not have good parents, so I need you to use your imagination that God gave you. I need you to dream of a parent that has healthy boundaries. I need you to dream of a parent who doesn't correct in anger. I need you to dream of a parent that does it in love. Because that's God. A lot of times we're afraid of our discipline because we think it's going to get out of control. But I want you to know that's a human thing. That's not a God thing. Let me give you an analogy. So once again, I've told you that I was a pretty easy kid. Right? I was pretty, um, pretty malleable. And only a couple times did I ever get in trouble and I got a spanking. I don't know. Anybody under the age of 30 know what a spanking is? You guys are, uh, under the age of 30, Nate, come on. Come on. All right. So here's, here's what a spanking was. See, uh, when we got in trouble, my mom would get the spatula. You know what a spatula is? Yeah. Here's why she didn't use a wooden spoon, because it broke. <laughs> so she used a spatula. Now, the, the way that it would work on the spanking is it was never that hard or that big of a deal. She, every time she came in with love, she never did it out of anger. She always 
surrounded it with love. Nobody loved me like my mom loved me as a child. It was entirely healthy and appropriate, but I was terrified. You had to go sit in your room, and you could hear them coming down the hallway. <laughs> Y'all remember this? And it's like, what's going to happen, right? But I had nothing to fear. I didn't know that, but I had nothing to fear. Looking back, I know I had nothing to fear because I had a good mom that was doing it for the right reasons, in the right way, never got out of control. I want you to know that that's how God treats you. That when he comes in for discipline, you're going to want to run away. But when you run away, it just makes everything harder. And God's saying, I need you to stand up under this because I'm trying to make you better. Can I have the prayer team come on up here? Here's the personal piece that we close with. Where in our lives have we intermarried with the enemy? Where in our lives are we choosing something other than God and hijacking our blessings? Right, I told you, this sermon is about setting up for a solution next week. But I want us to sit in the tension that we know full well there's stuff in our lives that's out of line. Where have we intermarried with the enemy and been unfaithful to the Lord? And what are we going to do about that? So I'm going to pray for us in general, and then I'm going to pray an anointing over the prayer team. And really, here's what the prayer team is doing. They're not here to give you advice. You're not going to walk up and they'll be like, well, the reason you did that is you're an idiot, you know, stuff like that. That's not the prayer team's job. The prayer team's job is they would pray cleansing flood over you and saying, Lord, hear our prayers. Their job is not to correct you. Their job is to release you into the hands of God and be by your side. That's what the altar's for. So when I say amen, the altar's open, and I encourage all of you that need to clear stuff out of your heart to come forward. But let me pray for us. Holy Spirit, in this serious tone and time, we pray that you would simultaneously pour out your love and raise up your conviction. That only a perfect parent can do that. That God, that for the rest of us, when we hear discipline, we think shame and condemnation and feeling yucky and I never want to try again and we go way overboard. Then there's other of us, Lord, that are hiding in excuses saying that you don't care about sin, it's no big deal, I'm sure you'll understand. I don't think that's true either. So in that middle where you seek our best, where you hold us accountable for that which we do, where you see everything and you say, whoa, 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 why are you choosing that and not me? Or maybe, Lord, you're saying, I know exactly why you're choosing that over me. Why don't you love me more? God, you stir up these questions in our hearts. What is it that's ruining our blessing? What's ruining our relationship with you? What's getting in the way? And whatever that is, Lord, that you're shining the light on, and it may be three, four, five things. Maybe it's just one. We want to take that right now out of our heart, and we want to offer it to you. We ask that you would deal with it rightly and change our love 
for you and turn it away from that more towards you. So we repent before you and we own up to it, Lord. We're not wiggling out of anything. We're just calling it what it is. And we're saying, heal us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a wonderful weekend.